I am so pleased to be here with my friend Winnie. Hi Winnie, how you doing? Hey, hey Ezra, it's so good to be here with you. So, this is the first time that we are going to be talking to some of our friends about the topics of God and race. How are you feeling about that? I feel a little intimidated and I'm still figuring out how to pronounce G-race. G-race, G-race, yeah. Great. Kind of God and race, grace, G-race, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, we'll figure thank, it out. <laughs> thank you for inviting me to this conversation. I'm really happy to be with you for it. And have you, you've invited someone to this conversation too, haven't you? Yeah, so I'm so excited about this. Um, tell me if I go on too long. So today I get to introduce yeah. to you one of our friends. So I know okay. you know him, but I feel very, um, I'm feeling a lot of ownership right now and you can correct that. <laughs> <laughs> so Broderick Greer is the yeah. canon presenter of the Episcopal Cathedral in Denver, Colorado. It's called uh, St. John. Broderick is from Fort Worth, Texas. I'm from Dallas, which is the neighboring city. And I first met Broderick at an event in his diocese. He was living in Tennessee, which is the American South. And they were working on becoming more inclusive of LGBT persons in the church in that diocese. So I didn't know him at all. And so I used to do a lot of events like that 10 or 15, 20 years ago when that was a huge project in our church. So I would go, I would speak, people would ask questions. It was really bizarre, like a little, kind of felt like a monkey on a stage, frankly. Um, but it was a way for to support local activists who had been working on inclusion for themselves and their friends for a long time and to help others to get a sense of what was possible in that diocese. So I did my thing. We're in Tennessee, full room, lovely audience, almost all white. One young woman literally got up and told her coming out story in public for the first time. And people really? gathered around her at the microphone. She was weeping to support her as a Christian who is coming out. I mean, the thing was very emotional, very moving. So at the end of this, a young man comes up to me and says, thank you, very politely, and says that he was in the process of being ordained as a priest in the Episcopal Church. So he's an undergraduate. He's like maybe barely 20, if that, very unusual. And I remembered it because he was black. And all of that is very unusual in our church. And I assumed that he was gay. I can't remember if he told me, but he was definitely at that event. So I had this like big mother hen moment of, oh, protect this one, right? <laughs> and of course... He didn't need it, he's never needed it, but I remembered him from it. He went off to Virginia Seminary um, and you know, was doing his thing and Michael Brown was shot in, in Ferguson um, and left to die on the street. And the whole country witnessed this, right? And then witnessed young adults from all over the country showing up to support the young adults in that community, standing up to their police. Broderick went, black young adults from all over the country went. And that began the movement that's the movement for black lives in this country and that with the slogan, Black Lives Matter. Um, and Broderick very quickly claimed a powerful, widely read voice in America and to the Episcopal Church. But also, right, he engages mainstream politics as well as activism, supporting candidates, speaking to the importance of the franchise, black communities still active struggle to vote in the United States. So besides all these very compelling aspects, right, he's also a well-tailored suit, excellent skincare, brilliant general Zoom presentation skills. So I am so happy to introduce him um, to you. Well, welcome, Broderick Greer. Thank you so much. It's good to see both of you. Broderick, they tried to get me to stop talking about who you are and I refused. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> it was amazing that 
the story, the narrative, and just that sense of coming from neighboring cities and finding each other at this event. It's brilliant. I feel um, I feel big already for being in this room. Roderick, thanks for being awake at eight in the morning. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. Yeah, you look wonderful. It's the ring light. How, how are you getting your haircut in this COVID time? Look at that. Usually I we'll... can't. I can't say. It's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so wonderful um, to see you. And going back to the sense that you are both from uh, Texas, I'm wondering, Roderick and Winnie, how do you understand the concept of home? When you think of home, what comes into mind for you? You know, I have the, the funny fortune of my parents living still in my childhood home. So that's that's home. And home is also the cemetery where my great-grandfather is buried in East Texas. My grandmother had to leave their land when she was 16 because both of her parents died in the same year. And that is where her father is buried. And that's what she would often speak of as home. And so that is home for me as well. That's wonderful. Thank you. How about you, Winnie? Yeah, well, the way we started this conversation, I can see in my mind's eye the ranch house in Garland, Texas, with three bedrooms and a converted garage um, where I grew up um, with a classic Texas um, lot in Garland, which is east of the city, um, which is where Asian people, I think, were encouraged to move east and north um, after we came in, into town, not south, where black people were being pushed at that time out of neighborhoods. Um, which is fascinating to me. But my family's from India, so really home in my heart is where my parents are from um, in Kerala. Um, but home I grew up in um, is in Garland, Texas. Azra, what, how do you think about home? Oh, when I think about home, several places come to mind. So there's a sense of of home being in community with people who I love and love me. And so in that way, home isn't necessarily that rooted. I grew up in Leeds in West Yorkshire um, in the UK. Uh, that's where I was born and that's where I was raised. However, when I was a child, I went to the island of Nevis, where my parents are from. But when I go to the island of Nevis, people call me an Englishman. They say, Englishman, what's going on? And then when I'm over here, uh, people always ask me, where am I from? You know, that's the question. People are trying to figure out which box I belong in. However, one little story comes to mind. When I went back to Nevis, I went to the village that my mum grew up in. And this woman looked at me, and my surname is France Williams, and she went, France! And this woman had grown up with my mum. And I'd never heard of this woman before. Um, my mum and her had grown up with my mother's grandmother, and she just looked at me and saw something of the family resemblance. And that was an amazing sense of connection with that place that far outstripped any other. So Broderick, um, the reason we're talking about home is I was um, telling Azariah about watching your Instagram and other social media and the, the sweet pictures of your childhood that you post and your insistence mm -hmm. on black, frankly, ordinariness, jo joy, delight, um, beauty, um, 
and how it, the pictures of the you know of the style that my parents have right and the outfits we remember those generations of outfits and it's just delightful and then watching people respond to that so I wanted to, wanted you to talk about and as right here um, how you think about this really transgressive I think insistence on black delight joy dignity and your um, maybe if you want to link it to your mother a quote from your mother that um, that we have. How can white people call themselves Christian and hate black people? Um, so you can take that wherever you want, but to me, those are the things that you just put right up against each other um, in your in your ministry in line. Absolutely, we, that has become very important to me over the last few years to really emphasize, just for myself, that to love black people, to love blackness, to love my black self. It's always been important for me to love the people who raised me and who gave me the values that I have today. And a part of that is loving my childhood. It's easy for me to love my childhood because I had a very almost idyllic type childhood and was very sheltered, very, well, I think this sums up all of this pretty well. When I was in seminary, my Hebrew Bible professor, who's also black, she was my small group leader my first year. And one day she said to me, I think this was later in seminary, she said, Broderick, I wouldn't say that you're spoiled. I would just say that you are well loved, (laughs) which was her way of saying that I'm spoiled. And that's how I was brought up. Our parents were insistent on, you know, taking us everywhere they went. If we ever needed to be watched, it was always by a grandparent or a cousin or an aunt. That was just just the, the web of relationships and connections that I had as a child is really because my parents have never lived more than five minutes away from where they were raised. And so it was just this huge extended family and extended church relationships and, and, and. And really at no point throughout my childhood did I ever feel unsafe. And that that's my foundation. And this really came home to me a few years ago when I was listening to Krista Tippett interview Nikki Giovanni. And Nikki Giovanni has a wonderful poem that touches on this. And she talks about how she really doesn't want white people to ever tell her story of her childhood. And she says, even though you remember, your biographers never understand your father's pain as he sells his stock and another dream goes. And though you're poor, it isn't poverty that concerns you. And though they fought a lot, it isn't your father's drinking that makes any difference, but only that everybody is together and you and your sister have happy birthdays and very good Christmases. And I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me because they never understand. Black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand all the, all the while I was quite happy. 
Broderick, it's wonderful to hear that story of love, that story of the web of relationships and that forming and forging of identity. I'm curious, how do you see that that upbringing has prepared your body to be in a white world mm. where the gaze is not always as friendly, where the relationships can be more frosty? Yes, and, and my parents are very race-conscious people, and I think every step of the... I don't think. I know every step of the way they were pre preparing me and my brother for a white world. And part of that insulation and cushion that I grew up with was in many ways to protect us from that. But they were very explicit about the challenges we would face for being black and modeled that for us. You know, if there, if there was a racist incident at work or something in the news, they always talked to us about that and were very clear about it and, and very clear about their feelings about racism. And, and back to what Winnie said earlier about my mom's theodicy is really what I call it. I mean, it, it's really one of her really tough questions that she wrestles with and wrestles with God with. How, you know, how, how can white people call themselves Christian and be racist and be white supremacists? And, and I think that that has been a core curiosity for me in my adult life. I haven't, I mean, that question is not resolved for me. It's a living question. And, and it's a question I think not only have I inherited from my mother, but I've inherited from generations of black Americans who are deeply Christian, deeply black, and cannot really wrap our minds around the evil that has been done in the name of the Christian God. When others come to you, as you went to talk to Winnie, and they have had a deficit of those positive messages, and the white world has stripped them of a sense of identity and dignity um, that you have been blessed with and embedded into your consciousness. How do you begin to help them to begin to see themselves? I think for me, a lot of it has to do with the two creation stories in Genesis and really making the connection that if your skin is some shade of brown, you, you, you come from the ground. And I, and I know that that's metaphorical, that's, it's playful, but that is how intricately involved God is in our creation from the beginning and more particularly in our own iteration of being alive. And so for me to be a black person, to be a brown person, to look like the dirt from whence I came is to be someone who is on God's mind. And, and that, that is to be human. And, you know, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but we know that, that our word for human really in English comes from a Latin word, which basically just means ground, 
which is, you know, very closely related to the word humility. And that has something to do with color, too. That, that what, what, color, what color is the ground, usually? Where my grandmother grew up in rural East Texas, it's red. The dirt is red. The ground and the earth is red. Um, and I, you know, I think about that when I look in the mirror. I have some red undertones to my skin color. And that is my connection to God. That, that is how intimately involved God is in my life and in my formation, is that I look like the ground from which I came. And, and I think that's a, a good place to start theologically. That's amazing. Gosh, being in God's mind and in God's mm, hands. Mm-hmm. I could have just said that and I didn't, wouldn't have had to go through that whole thing. No, no, no. We need the journey. We need the story. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Broderick, that was so beautiful. Um, so I'll take it in a slightly different way. So um, you referenced, or talk, you, you talk about this, about um, speaking from our wounds, uh, from our scars and not our wounds. Um, and I've heard that in kind of preaching and, and in kind of small group work. Um, so how do you do that discernment, especially in these times when, you know, looking from the outside, there's such urgency, specifically around police violence, this moment that we have. And so many people are speaking quickly and effectively, and you are one of those people. So what what is that work? Or what does that look like? And how, how do we how do we understand it? And how do we equip people to do that? And and the person I heard that from is our mutual friend, Nadia Boltz Weber. I think the way I gauge it internally is can I speak about something without my blood pressure going up? And it's not that I don't have an emotional investment. It's not that I am dissociating. But for me, if I can speak about something, my blood pressure doesn't go up, I can be hopefully thoughtful, measured, wise about it. And when I'm done, I don't have to call a friend and talk to them for two hours about it. That for me is preaching or writing from my scars. Now, preaching or writing from my wounds is completely, it's, it's basically the inverse of that. When I'm having a stress reaction and I have to process that with a friend or a loved one after I'm done. So I, I recently watched a conversation um, that in which the the person asking the questions is you know a very good person um, just really needed to put the black person they were talking to into a category of you know they they needed them to be an outsider um, they just I, they just couldn't organize who this person was and literally in the question kind of said essentially said I really can't make sense of you in this institution with this voice very sincerely I think didn't quite mean to say it that way but said that um, and. I think we're actually kind of speaking to that right here, that the, um, what can seem like the confusion from, from those used to looking at us and who we're, how we're supposed to, who we're supposed to be, or not even at us, but thinking about race, right? Um, and seeing delight, power, joy, dignity, creativity, all the, the kind of the, the marks of resistance, but also just of living, of thriving, of faith, you know, dignity, um, and a critique of racism and sincere about that, right? So I'm not even thinking about the people for whom this is, you know, that we don't, that don't want to be in conversation with us, but sincere folks 
trying to understand racism and what they see is uh, a marginalized body, you know, or a marginalized voice. Um, and that, that I, I think there's actually a real confusion there, right, in wanting to help these folks who are having a tough time um, versus the joy and delight coming from that spoiled, well-moisturized face, right? Like whatever that is, like I'm just like a happy person, right? And so the, I think some of the language we use is decentering whiteness, right? Like there's, there's kind of theoretical language around it, but I think there's actual like real confusion about how these two things can live alongside one another because literally, because whiteness is safety and whiteness is joy and whiteness is power and whiteness is privilege. Um, so I, I just think that's a really interesting space theologically in our lived lives um, in church, that these, these two things that actually should be comparable, the, the white, happy, thoughtful person, the black or brown, thriving, happy, thoughtful person, but actually they, the identities contest one another because of how whiteness is constructed. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think of um, my mum growing up in the village in, on the island of Nevis. Uh, their pride was in saying whenever they had material goods, new clothing or what have you, they'd go around the village shouting, we are cotton ground whites, because white was seen to be the ideal. That was what was encoded in their minds. We are cotton ground whites, because they had shoes to go to school. And the Anglican Church in the islands of the Caribbean was the aspirational church. If you went to the Anglican Church, you were seen as that you were trying to reach this idealised humanity of, of whiteness. Um, I am I'm curious about in the UK, there's conversations around being allies and white friends would say, how can we be an ally to you? And recently I was challenged by um, a black friend that said, hold on a minute, they're not allies to us helping us out. We're the allies to them, helping them to deconstruct whiteness. You know, so actually, we black and brown folks, we are the allies. And I love that reframing. And I'm, I'm curious um, from, you know, you, Broderick, when you think about allyship, when we think about comparing black and white, what sorts of things are generated in your imagination and your thinking? Well, I was in a... I attended a Zoom conference last week um, put on by the Office of Black Ministries for the Episcopal Church. And one of the keynote speakers was Bishop Rob Wright of Atlanta in the American South in Georgia. And Bishop Wright said to you know clergy and lay people that black people, African descended people, hold within our lived experience, within our bodies, within our lives, sort of the, the key to get out of this pandemic and survive this pandemic. Because in many ways, this pandemic is not even the, the most difficult thing we have gone through. And, and it made me think, oh my goodness, there, there are tools in many ways that we have, not because we want them, but it's out of necessity, just because we've had to survive the viciousness of white supremacy for many centuries. So Broderick, to this idea that there are particular tools, right, um, um, within black theology, the black experience, I remember doing a, a clergy conference somewhere in the western part of our country, and I had decided mm. to talk about Galatians and freedom, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. And I realized that when I was saying freedom in this room of literally all white folks, great people, right? All white, um, where there are militias, white militias, 
that my vocabulary actually meant something totally different. Um, and so you, you've used this language of um, that we might have the same grammar or I'd say maybe the same vocabulary um, as white Christians, but often black Christians mm. mean something very different. Um, and so let's, let's talk about that, how we use the, the same words maybe to mean something very different about what God is up to. Yes, it, it ha- so much is wrapped in this that black Christians in some way have appropriated white Christian vocabulary and retrofitted it for something completely different. And and I think in the end, it's our own liberation, our own humanity, our own wholeness. And just the word freedom alone, you know, where you were in a place with white militias where for them, freedom is autonomy, whiteness in its fullness, and basically a world free from black and brown people, most likely LGBT people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas freedom, as I've heard it articulated by many black people and brown people, is very concerned with black and brown people's liberation But the implication of our liberation and freedom is that everyone then is set free. Because as soon as black people are set free from the ravages of white supremacy, and with that comes sexism, hetero um, sexism, homo antagonism, that puts white supremacy on defense. And we know that white people are held captive by white supremacy. It affects their imagination. It affects their ability to relate to us as human beings. It affects where they live. You know, the segregation and all of these things go many different ways. It doesn't just go one way toward us. It also, they are then deprived of our presence and our witness and our lived experience. I've been very curious recently about the holiness movement among black people. You know, this late 19th century movement that then over time, over the next 40, 50 years, wedded itself to black Pentecostalism in the U.S. And I I did not grow up in the Pentecostal tradition, but I grew up in the Afro-Baptist tradition. And so in the Afro-Baptist tradition, how that manifested was that we did not drink. You know, my mother has, she's 61 years old. She has never worn trousers to church. And that's kind of the residual of the holiness movement. And I'm, I'm gonna get to the point. I think in many ways that has manifested among black people as a reaction to whiteness. And so my mom would use this language so much growing up. We're not like the world. And the world was this category that was everything that was not of God. So we're not like the world. And I now wonder, oh, did they mean we're not like white people? We dressed different from them. We didn't have the same values, the same engagement in drunkenness, in a lack of sobriety in our minds and our bodies. Yes. You know, uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so um, 
um, the scholar Anthony Reddy speaks about um, in the mainstream churches uh, we have freedom of thinking in the majority black churches and like the holiness we have freedom of, of movement and expression I wonder if you've seen any glimpses of where both happen where you're free to think and free to move and free to express I will say in my childhood church we were always given the permission to think expansively of God and there was so much freedom around movement and and we weren't even Pentecostal or charismatic. I mean, we were just very run-of-the-mill black Baptists who danced in church. I know a lot of Pentecostals call it um, having a praise break. We didn't call it that. We called it a holy dance. And I, I also see that as a response to white supremacy, that these are people who six days a week are comporting themselves and sometimes contorting themselves to not show personality at work or school or in their neighborhood or wherever and making themselves small. And when you're in the presence of God and in the presence of the people of God, you are, you are not small. You are, you are large. You can be expansive. You can move. You can shout. That was another... Um, that's another way we would talk about when people would, quote, catch the Holy Ghost in church. Just no, no decorum, because how can you, how, what decorum is appropriate before God when you are truly free? Um, I guess as close as I get to an example like that, because I was raised in, in really, in a monolingual um, monocultural church community, but you, I don't think you can make a more uptight community um, physically and intellectually than Malayali <laughs> Christians. Um, so that, that is my heritage. Um, and uh, when I was at St. Mark's for six years, which is the church, St. Mark's in the Bowery is in the East Village, it's built on the grave, or it, it exists because of, because Peter Stuyvesant is buried there. He was the last Dutch governor general. So the end of the Dutch colonial period, the beginning of the English colonial period, um, which it has this kind of wonderful set of complications, right? That it, it kind of marks the story of colonialism. It reminds us that we are a colony. We are a colonized people, a colonized city. Um, and that church, this great old colonial building, um, has had fires and so there are no pews. So it meets in the round. And I really feel like that diverse, eclectic, struggling congregation over the generation, sometimes quite thriving, very artistic, very edgy in how it approaches how the spirit is present in the Americas and in that neighborhood, um, sort of demonstrates a little bit of the struggle of diverse American communities to try to be, you know, to try to be open to what God might be calling them to be. There's a lot of struggle in it, but a lot of joy, and partly because the musician there is absolutely a Baptist, Pentecostal, Episcopalian kind of person, person. so brings it all. Um, but I think even in its, you know, in its everything that emerges at that altar in the middle of the room and in that circle, and its struggles um, are really about what is what are the spirituality and the spiritual forces of the Americas in this generation of all of the struggles of the Americas. Um, so not nearly as theologically clear and as pure in many ways as what you're describing of of centered in a, a theological power of in, you know of in dignity, um, but that that struggle that is us um, seemed very apparent to me there. So, Broderick, I'm really curious about what you're, like, what, what is capturing your imagination these days? 
a Canadian broadcasting show called Kim's Convenience. And it's about four years old, but I just discovered it on Netflix, and I am absolutely obsessed. It's set in Toronto. It's set in this fictional convenience store that has this cross-section of people, lots of immigrant communities in Toronto. It's just a funny, warm, complicated um, story. I've really enjoyed uh, watching Kim's Convenience. How about you, Winnie? What's exciting you right now? You know, I um, Broderick named, called me out at the very beginning. We have a garden <laughs> here in the middle of Manhattan. And I am obsessed. I'm very sad about that. It, it froze last night, like that it will have to go away. It has, it has been my touch point um, mm. through COVID that there are things that are still flourishing that I can, I can help. Um, I can assist in some way that... Um, create some beauty um and it literally like sticking my hands in the dirt um mm. makes me feel like we're gonna be all right i feel a little normal yeah well for me i'm sticking with the um soil themes i'm reading a graphic novel version of octavia e butler's the parable of the sower oh. so she is a science fiction afrofuturist um writer and i'm just loving this new conception this this broad conception of god like you were describing broderick of of god is change and and this wonderful dynamic energy that's found within um this novel that i'm reading so that's exciting me right now so this is the point in the conversation where i would say um amen hallelujah um but i want to say i love you guys and i wanted to see you in conversation and thank you for letting me eavesdrop on that a little bit um and broderick thank you for being in conversation with us thank you again broderick thank you winnie um it's been such a great opportunity to hear with and from you thank you so until next time um this has been G race, G race, G race, something like that. We'll, we'll, we'll get it eventually. We'll get it. We'll get it. <laughs> Thank you. As are our fans, Williams and Winnie Varghese were talking to Broderick Greer. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace was produced by me, Rosie Dawson. If you like this episode, you'll find more at heartedge.org or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please do leave us a comment, subscribe, and share grace with your friends.